Welcome to the Big Ticket Clients Podcast, where we feature expert thought leaders and cover the best strategies, stories, and psychology you need to land big ticket clients. Because as you know, you can't catch a whale with a worm. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Pillay with the Big Ticket Clients Podcast. And it is my pleasure to introduce you to Rand Fishkin. Now, Rand, I'm not going to let you say a word until I run down this 5,000-page list of all your amazing accomplishments. You you really don't need to do that. (laughs) Okay, here's the deal. First of all, Rand, if anyone types in who are the top online marketers in the world, you're going to be one, two, or three on any given day. You co-founded Moz. Um, multi-million dollar clients have gone through your your business path. Uh, currently, you're working on Spark Toro, and you're the author of Lost and Founder. Oh, my goodness. How are you and where are you located right now, by the way? <laughs> I am. I'm doing well. I'm in my uh, in my backyard in a in a converted garden shed in Seattle, Washington, uh, one of the only cool places on the planet this summer, apparently. Now, when you say and, converted, what do you mean converted garden shed? Do you, what do you use it for now? Oh, I, I mean, now it's my office. Now, it, I, my co-founder and I call this uh, Shed Toro. Ah, Shed yeah. Toro for Spark Toro. I love it. Exactly, I really love it. Exactly. So, you know, when we were first, you know, talking and getting to know each other, I, I told you that I want to, I just want to know your your story all the way to childhood. And you were like, oh my gosh, that's going to be a long conversation. But but if you could help us understand, you know, how a, a guy like you, a kid growing up, you know, discovered that he wanted to be an entrepreneur. What was the path for you? How did you get there? I mean, I think there's there's obviously a bunch of like um, systemic and, and economic and exposure opportunity, you know, types of things. So you know, my dad was an engineer. He worked at, at Boeing. Um, he worked. He he had the craziest career, right? The career that like only only a uh, a baby boomer could have. Uh, he, I think, in 1979, which is the year I was born, he, he moved out to Seattle, got a job at Boeing, and retired uh, the week of his 30th year at Boeing in 2009 with his full pension never worked anywhere else. That was it, right? That was, that was his life. Like he had the, he had that classic, like old Americana yeah. um, ability journey, which is, which is just weird. Right. And, and then my mom, who I think I take, you know, my entrepreneurial side from my mom, Jillian started um, a, a marketing small business in here, here in Seattle that same year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and basically carried that career through a ton of different transitions uh, her whole life. And then, you know, eventually we co-founded Moz together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I think mom and son is probably the uh, least <laughs> common venture capital backed uh, startup co-founder relationship. Yeah, no, but, yeah. Uh, there you go. Well, the idea that, that your mom was sort of your, your co-founder is is fascinating. Was, yeah, yeah. But, but another concept that seems to be part of the history that follows you is your father's role. So what did your, what did your father, um, how did, how did that work out mom? And then you, and then how was your, what was your dad's contribution or non-contribution? Whatever. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think I've been, I don't talk about it a lot, but I, 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 my dad and I don't see eye to eye on a lot of things. We have a relatively, um, 
unfortunately adversarial relationship. I think I think these days it's just kind of a cool relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, has been for for a long time, but yeah, we, you know, I think my dad is a very risk averse person, mm-hmm. and entrepreneurship is a very risky endeavor, right? As as you well know, you yeah. know, you yeah. you are putting you know, your financial security and the security of your family on the line. And and this is why so few entrepreneurs um, come from backgrounds where they don't have financial security in their family or or around them. And so many come from backgrounds of sort of already privilege, right? And I came from a background of, of already privilege. My dad was, you know, making good enough money that they could buy a house out in the well, it wasn't the suburbs. It was like the rural areas outside Seattle. Yeah. But, um, you know, we he was able to pay all our bills and, you know, use coupons to go to the grocery store every yeah. week. But, but, you know, we did fine, right? And so um, I think because of that, my mom was able to be a little bit more uh, risk-taking with her venture, and then we were able to be more risk-taking when we started Moz. Yeah. You know, a, a, a lot of the big stories, the great stories we hear seems to start in a garage somewhere, you know? <laughs> Somebody... I mean, I'm, I'm keeping my fingers crossed for <laughs> next great story starts in a shed. In a shed, uh, exactly, exactly. Okay, so... Classic entrepreneurial um, discovery process, right? You know, you know, guys in a, a shed, let's say, and he discovers that there's a problem somewhere that nobody's solving or that needs to be solved better. How did that story happen for you? First for Moz and then now for um, Spark Toro. Yeah, yeah. So um, do you remember, I, I don't know if you ever played around with Google in like the late 90s, early 2000s, but Google used to have this thing that you could do on their search engine where you could type in link colon any website, mm-hmm. right? Or any web page. And Google would return results to you that showed you all of the links that they knew about that pointed to that page. So the backlinks. Uh, or that website. Backlinks? Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. They'd show you all the, right? These are all the links from the rest of the internet that to we that crawled, page. that we yep. Google have crawled, that point to, you know, uh, Dr. Pillay's page, right? Yeah. And yeah. Awesome, super cool, right? This is useful for for PR and outreach and competitive intelligence. It's useful to figure out like why is this site ranking above me? Use for all for all these things. So 2006 or seven, I can't remember which one rolls around and they take it away. Wow. They basically like they get rid of it. And I thought, you know, um, as this is early in my SEO career, right? I started doing SEO around 2002, 2003, mm-hmm. after being a web designer for a couple of years, and I was so frustrated. Um, and, and sort of almost infuriated with Google for uh, pulling the ladder up behind themselves, mm-hmm, right? Which, mm-hmm. which I think is something over the last you know, 15 years, they've done egregiously more than they, than they did with this. But this was the first thing that sort of got my ire up. Mm-hmm. And so I, I got inspired. I wanted to recreate Google's index and be able to give this data back to all the marketers uh, and, and all the business owners who had lost it. I was like, no, it's not fair that Google took this away. How can we get it back to people? Um, and so, you know, I had some conversations on forums with folks, and it was, and it was one of those things where, whenever I talked to an engineer about it, they were like, "So, do you have a quarter of a billion dollars sitting around to go <laughs> do that? Because yeah. that's a really expensive, high intensity, you know, almost impossible to do thing." Mm-hmm. Turns out, finally. This one uh, one engineer, a friend of my wife's, Geraldine's from high school, mm-hmm. this guy, Penn Hendrickson, um, 
He's uh, he and I are sitting together at this Greek coffee shop in the university district mm-hmm. of, of Seattle. And I'm like, Ben, this is what I want to do. Like, do you, do you think this is possible? Is, is there any way to do it? And Ben kind of sits there. He like, he like cocks his head to the side for a minute and he's quiet for a, re- a disturbingly long period of time. Right. And, mm-hmm. and now that I know how Ben works, right. This is him like thinking through all the processes in his head to decide if, the, if this is possible. And, uh, and after like a long 90 second awkward pause, he's like, yeah, I think we could do that. <laughs> and so, yeah, uh, I, I hired Ben and we, um, we, we raised some money. Some venture capitalists had been reaching out to me already and sort of saying like, hey, this thing you're building with Moz looks really interesting. You know, what, is there something you would maybe want to raise capital about um, to do? And so we raised 1.1 million. I think Ben spent the next, you know, about 13 months or so, 12, 13 months or so kind of building this product. He hired a couple more people, um, uh, mutual friends and uh we were able to launch that, I think in, what was that? November of 08. Mm-hmm. And we, we had this like, Hey, here's link data back again, right yeah. here. Here's this thing. We called it Linkscape at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it was the first way that you could get back this data that, that Google had taken from you. And then I think that, you know, a lot of Moz's trajectory was about returning data or information that, I felt, we felt that that Google should be giving to small business owners and marketers, right? Here's real rankings data. Here's how you're doing against the competition. Here's what's going wrong on your site. Um, and they've gotten a little better about that since the launch of first Google Webmaster Tools. Now it's called Search Console, mm-hmm. but uh, but never as comprehensively uh, or accurately or full-featured as, as what I wanted. And so Moz sort of built its business, which is now somewhere around the $60 million a year mark mm-hmm. uh, around that that process of returning that information. So, you know, so here we are, you know, you're one of the founders, uh, at least of the search engine optimization business, if we, if we use this history you've shared. Um, how would you define search engine optimization? You know, a lot of people hear SEO and they go, ooh, is that black hat something or white hat or what, what, what is that? Like, what's your definition coming straight from the, the horse, I, I should say? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that um, historically, you're right, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, uh, there was a lot of perception all across industries of all kinds that, that SEO was manipulative or wrong or bad. Uh, today, I think that reputation is mostly gone, right? And virtually every major business has a team of search engine optimization professionals working there. And there are you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of agencies that do this around the world and help folks with it. Uh, but SEO is essentially the practice of um, influencing the non-paid results that appear in search engines, primarily Google, uh, but also you know, to a lesser extent, YouTube and, and Amazon and Bing and DuckDuckGo and these kinds of places. Uh, to show the display the types of results that you, a business owner, would find optimal and ideal, uh, and and or to drive non-paid traffic back to your website. Mm-hmm. And this, you know, over the last twenty years, because Google controls, you know, more than two thirds of all web traffic and ninety-five percent of all search traffic, it's become a huge industry. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked earlier about. Um 
creativity. You said that, uh, you know, you're not a musician or, you know, maybe even a painter or any of that kind of creativity. But this, this entrepreneurial thing, especially with technology, was your outlet for creativity. How did all of this come together to lead you from Moz and now to SparkToro? What is the shift or, or the, the yeah. difference that you're, you're making? What's the delta from these two, uh, from this change that you're making? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think that SparkToro is a much more intentional endeavor. You know, we were talking earlier, right? And my Moz journey has been kind of stumbling, especially early on, right? Stumbling from, oh no, we're deep in debt. Oh no, how do we dig ourselves out? Oh gosh, look, we we, we can't afford our SEO subcontractors. Oh gosh, well, I better learn SEO. Huh, I kind of like doing SEO. Hey, look, I'm good at blogging. Hey, look, I'm getting all these invitations to conferences and events to talk about SEO. Oh, look, let's build some software, right? So very, very accidental. Of, yeah, happy accidents. <laughs> yeah, happy accidents that sort of work themselves out, right? A lot of, uh, a lot of luck and, and um, uh, I think serendipity involved in all of that. SparkToro is um, much more intentional. I think that <laughs> there's, you know, there's a few sort of emotional components to building uh, a startup or a business almost Almost every entrepreneur I talk to, I'm sure most of the entrepreneurs you talk to, right, mm -hmm. have some emotional reason why they um, are doing are doing a startup. And for me, part of that is um, a big part of that is proving to myself that I can do this again, mm. proving to myself that I have the skills and talent and ability to do it again, um, and also uh, wanting to challenge the notion of how a startup can be built. Yeah. Right. So I think, you know, 99% of the time when you ask someone who's, who's even mildly familiar with the field, Hey, what is building a tech startup look like? Yeah. It's well, you've got to raise money. That's usually from angels and then venture capital and, you know, series a series B, all that kind of stuff. And, and you're trying to IPO or sell the business. And I don't, I don't think that should be the only way. Mm -hmm. Right. So I'm kind of trying to prove a lot of people wrong. In fact, Almost everyone in the tech startup uh, industry, mm -hmm. uh, certainly everyone who's a, a tech investor, almost everyone who's a tech investor, I'm sort of trying to prove that their model is not the only way to succeed. You know, and, you, you know what's interesting with what you just said is that it looks like you've been sort of trying to prove different things all your life. I mean, oh, you, yes. you've been a rebel, right? You talked about you talked about being sort of a rebel. Although you were well behaved, you weren't, you know, the the bad behaved yeah. rebel, but you've, you 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 want to make that dent, right? In in the the perception of things. I, I I'm interested really in one reputation that you have, right? Um it's around the word transparency. And by the way, we're going to talk about your book Lost and Founder, right? Which is uh, really, really interesting. But just leading up to that, let's talk about why transparency for you? Why do you believe that you should just share? Um, you should come as you are, be authentic. Um, and tell us about the rebel thing too. I know that's a lot in one question, but sure. <laughs> I want to know about those things. Yeah, I think the transparency thing is a, is a reaction uh -huh. um, to sort of an upbringing that was very... Uh, I, I don't want to say secretive, but but maybe um, just one where I didn't always feel like I could be myself, and and I felt like I was trying to pretend to be someone else so that I would be 
you know, whatever it is, liked by people in middle and high school or, you know, accepted by my parents or, you know, so that, um, so that girls would like me. Right? <laughs> I see. Yeah. Yeah, so we right? share that in common. That's why I started becoming, be, being a musician, right? It had something right. to do with girls, right? Back, back in the day. <laughs> I mean, I, I think, I think creative outlets are, are wonderful. And oftentimes, right, this kind of stuff, right. Even if the uh, source for the initial motivation is not, all that great, yeah. right? <laughs> Not all that noble. You you can turn it into a wonderful vocation or passion or hobby, and um, and so I think that that's what it was with transparency for me, right? This transparency was in reaction to feeling like I had to hide all these things, both about myself and about the situations I was in, and um, and and wanting to be done with that, right? Mm -hmm. Just saying, like, I am I am fed up. I'm finished. I will take all the pains that come with being transparent. And there are plenty. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think it's, you know, it's, it's hard work. It exposes you to criticism that you might not otherwise get. Um, it puts you at risk, mm -hmm. right? You are um, at risk of being judged at risk of being um, attacked. And, and um, I think that that, you know, that is a real thing. Not everyone can do it for those yeah. reasons. Uh, but I had the privilege and opportunity to, and, and then, uh, as far as being a rebel, I, I don't know. Maybe that, maybe that's genetic. Mm -hmm. I, I I can't quite put my finger on it. It it it's definitely an aspect of myself that I have thought long and hard about, and almost almost wished that I could be a more I don't know um, peaceful Zen type of person, <laughs> right? Not, not you know, but... sense, like sometimes you get you get really upset about something, right? Yeah. Uh, whatever it is, a political issue, a social issue, something in your personal life, something in your professional life. Mm -hmm. And you think that's unfair and it's wrong. And all I want to do is fight it. You want right? to change want, the world. I want to, it. I want to go at it hard. I don't want to let up. I don't want to be reasonable. Mm -hmm. I want to be a son of a bitch about this, right? <laughs> and, and that's not always positive, but it is definitely like, I feel it. I feel it in my spine. Yeah, you know, it, it is. It's just a part of who I am. And it's it's I mean, it's got to be liberating too. I mean, we all I'm sure would agree that authenticity sells too, right? So yeah, there's, there's, I, think, there's I think there's definitely an aspect to that. Yeah, well, and it's, it's kind of the you know what Seth Godin talks about with finding your tribe, right? Like mm -hmm. the this idea of people who observe you being authentic and and you speak to them and to their passion that builds up an audience, mm -hmm. um, uh, people who care about you, who follow you, who, who want to, uh, learn what you're doing, who want to support you. And that has been no doubt that has been the most wonderful part of being transparent and authentic. You know, I, I have to say that I, I couldn't agree more with how you've positioned this whole transparency, authenticity thing. My struggle was with my creative side, the music um, and my artistic side versus my business side. You know, I would go into companies and try to get, you know, keep a job, but it just wasn't me. And, and, and I have struggled all my life to try to hide my music and get it out of the way because I didn't think that it had a place in business. So to your point, I'm finally at home with myself. As you can see, the, the guitar right there. <laughs> I'm finally at home with myself because I've brought my creativity and my authenticity into what I do. So thank you for sort of reinforcing and, and sharing that. I, I love that so much. I think that, I think that there's this, 
um, infuriating sort of classically held belief about how business and entrepreneurship is supposed to work that somehow you have to separate yeah. who you are as a human being exactly from who you are professionally. And I, I think my favorite part about the startup world, there's a lot, there's a lot that I don't love yeah. about startups and, and, and tech startups in particular. Um, but I think the, the part that I do love is the, you can be your authentic self, yes. right? That this idea that you can build whatever kind of company you want to build and you can switch from, Hey, I don't want to wear suits and ties. I want to wear whatever I'm going to wear. Yeah. Right? Or, or you can wear a t-shirt with your name on it. Dr. Pillay. <laughs> So if I wear ridiculous shirts and yeah. stand in front of a whiteboard and doodle on it for 10 minutes every week and have people watch those videos and that's how I'm going to teach people about SEO, great, that, right? That works too. <laughs> it doesn't work. If yeah. it does, you know, it can be wonderful. So I, I, I do love that aspect. I think that um, I think that part of that is speaks to that rebel aspect of of who we are, right? Yeah, that, yeah. that we don't want to we don't want to go for lack of a better word, right? I don't want to put on a shirt and tie every morning, go to my nine to five job for 30 years, yeah. retire with my full pension. I just, <laughs> hey, that's, I that's dad's path, okay? <laughs> it works for him, right? He really values security. Yep. He really values stability. Um, and I am, I'm not that person. Well, you know, you know, a lot of people are, realizing that we really don't have security anyone no one has yeah. it so why even live in that bubble but you know i think that i i would love to learn more about your current work um lost and sure. founder the, the the book that you've written because based on taking a look at it it looks like you've sort of wrapped this this feeling you have about wanting to to support and help uh, entrepreneurs early stage startups kind of do it right cuz because you made all the mistakes, why have them do it, right? Yeah, so, why do you have to go through the same mistakes I made? Yeah, so yeah, tell so, us about the book. Uh, Dr. Clay, like, I, I wrote Lost and Founder because of a lot of conversations like this, right? Uh -huh. So where are you based? I'm in Austin, Texas. Yeah, right. So like, oh, I'm flying into Austin for a conference, right? I'm going to speak at this event. Uh, hey, you know, let's... Uh, let's go catch some coffee together, right? And we sit down and we talk about our entrepreneurial journeys and we share what we're working on right now. And we give each other tips and advice about, hey, this worked, this didn't work for me. Oh, you should talk to this person. Hey, I really recommend you. And that's an awesome experience, right? I love that. I love being able to help other entrepreneurs, but it does not scale. Mm. You cannot have those conversations with 50,000 people, right? That's right. But... You can, if you can do a good job of storytelling, mm. you can have 50,000 people read those stories and experience, you know, sort of that, that insight and get that value from a book. And so that, that is why I wrote Lost and Founder is because of conversations, you know, like the one we're having now and, and many others mm -hmm. uh, where I just, I felt like, gosh, not enough entrepreneurs are willing to talk about hard times and failure and not doing things well or right and making mistakes. Uh, almost every business book you read out there is, I am a god of business and you can be too if you follow my 10-step methodology. Yeah, there you go. Like we all know that's crap, right? But we buy those books anyway because we're like, well, let's see what Steve Jobs has to say. <laughs> like 
I think there's a tremendous amount more value in someone being truly transparent and saying, hey, this journey went mediocre. It went kind of okay. Here's the good parts. Here's the bad parts. And that is the truth. No matter how successful any entrepreneur is, there are good parts and bad parts, but we have been trained by, by media and by reinforcement not to share the bad parts. Yeah. Right? We're embarrassed about them, so we hide them. And Lost and Founder is the opposite, right? Yeah. If there was something I was embarrassed about, I thought, okay, how do I get it down on paper? <laughs> how, do I, how do I put it in here? <laughs> you know, what's what's interesting is that, um, you know, there's a saying on my wall, actually. It's uh, a leader is one who knows the way, goes the way, and can show the way. Um, and I think that what I find particularly powerful about Lost and Founder is this is a journey that really happened. You went there, you did this, you made these mistakes. And so it's going to be powerful for someone who's trying to become an entrepreneur to read those. If you had maybe one, two, or three tips or advice or little nuggets that you want to extract from the book to share right now, what would they be? Sure. Um, so one of the chapters talks about professional services versus product, right? So Moz, initially, it used to be a services company. It was consulting, right? We'd help um, websites do their SEO, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and that business is very unattractive to professional investors. Uh, and because it's unattractive to them, I think they have sort of uh, made it the culture in the tech world that services are anathema, right? That they are somehow bad and you don't want services revenue and every services business should try and become a product, product business. Yeah, yeah. The only real entrepreneurs are product business entrepreneurs. And so I, I did a deep dive in this chapter about uh, the financial outcomes, the risk models. You know, it, it, it doesn't get too technical, right? But it has some, some charts and graphs and data uh, showing that actually, in a lot of ways, a services business is probably more likely to, to be under your control long term. It's more likely to make you more money in the short and long term. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's definitely more likely to survive than a product business. Investors like big, big bets, right? They like to pour tens to hundreds of millions of dollars into things that will be hopefully worth billions and billions of dollars and return huge amounts of capital to a fund mm -hmm. and beat the stock market. That is not what entrepreneurs, 99% of entrepreneurs are not and should not be chasing that. Mm -hmm. And so I think unfortunately that that is one you know, big nugget that I would share is that you can build an awesome business with product, with services, with both, you do not need to pay attention to this sort of, I don't know, popular idea in tech that, that one is necessarily better than the other. It, yeah. it really isn't. You're a myth uh, buster. You, you, have you ever heard of that? A myth buster? Yeah, myth buster. Yeah, yeah that's you. You're, you. you're busting all the myths in this book. So tell us another couple yeah, yeah. more. <laughs> um, another, another big one that I found is uh, many, many companies especially uh, early stage folks and entrepreneurs, they, they, they hire, hire and fire incorrectly. Mm. Um, and I, wanna, I don't want to say like completely incorrectly, but just they have the wrong bias around hiring and firing. Uh -huh. So the, the traditional bias is uh, I'm going to hire someone for their skills. Can they do this work that I need them to do? Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to hope that I can mold the culture around them and around you know all the people who are here, such that it 
inspires and gets people working well together. And then they fire for fit, right? <laughs> and they, yes. And then they, and when you fire someone, you're like, well, you were not uh, getting as much done as I wanted to you to, or you weren't getting uh, as much. Uh, the the quality level wasn't high enough. Yep. But if somebody has a cultural fit problem, right? Like, gosh, this person is a talented, let's use the classic example, a talented software engineer, mm -hmm. but their whole team hates working with them. The product manager is just infuriated that they have to go into work with this person. Their boss is struggling with them. Uh, the, the help team members who bring them tickets are just like, just hate talking to this person. Uh, they're they're just a problematic employee on all the cultural aspects, yeah. but their code is really good and they can produce a lot of it. And when they get you know excited and inspired about something, they can produce it faster than almost anyone else on the team. And so what does the company do, right? The company, in the classic model, the company's like, well, let's keep working with this person on culture fit uh, and see if we can get them to you know a better place where they work with the rest of their team uh, in better ways. Yep. And that's that my experience has been, and a lot of experience has been, um, Google actually did a huge large scale survey on the, uh, uh, study on this over many, many years, mm -hmm. uh, that basically all the results, uh, out there show that if you fire for culture fit, uh, if you hire and fire for culture fit mm -hmm. and you train for uh, quality of work, you get far better outcomes. So yeah. instead of spending six months upgrading someone's ability to work with their team, spend six months upgrading their ability to whatever, write better code, exactly. uh, better editing, be a better product manager, uh, right? Train them on those things, be willing to invest on that stuff mm -hmm. and find people who work phenomenally well together, who you enjoy working with, who are good culture fits for you and your company, who want the same sorts of outcomes that you have. Yeah, that, it's, that model works it's, way it's easier to, to, to change knowledge than to change behavior. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it, it seems so obvious to us, right? Yeah, if if yeah. I say, hey, I would like you to, um, you know, over the next six months, uh, Dr. Pele, can you teach me to play my ukulele? Right? Of like I, I'm terrible at it, <laughs> right? but, but I, I, I want to learn yeah. versus, well, I'm like a decent, you know, ukulele player, but I really don't want to learn and I'm hard to work with. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't know, hate guys in hats, so I don't want to work with you. <laughs> then you have to contend with my bald head. <laughs> yeah, a, you should, you should, you should work with the first version of me and you should fire the second version of me absolutely. And unfortunately companies always do the reverse no absolutely now what's your third big nugget because those two right there are you know that's good enough for me but let's see if we can get one more in <laughs> yeah uh, third one is if you're an entrepreneur and you are starting a business uh i think that the the way we think about how to fund that business is far too narrow right now. Mm. Um, the, the number of options available to us has grown and grown. And yet the number of people who are pursuing exclusively, mostly angel and, and venture institutional forms of capital uh, is way, way, way too high. And we should not place those, those businesses on, on pillars and those models on pillars. I, I would strongly recommend to any entrepreneur considering building their first, their second business to consider whether uh, friends and family style money is a better fit, whether some of the newer accelerators out there are a better fit, whether 
uh, some of these alternative investing vehicles, places like um, IndyVC and um, this is self-serving because my, my wife and I are investors in it, but uh, Tiny Seed Fund, which has this very alternative type of model. Uh, when, when we funded SparkToro, which is funded by 36 sort of angel investors, mm -hmm. we open sourced our funding documents. So everything that our lawyers prepared for us and all that stuff, which is slightly costly, right? But you can save a bunch of money just by using our docs or a version of them. Mm -hmm. uh, we decided to build an LLC that's a partnership. Our investors own units of units in that partnership and they get distributions from our profits, mm -hmm. which sounds sort of classic and old school and very weird for a tech business. But I, I think that model has legs. Um, the crowdfunding world, mm -hmm. right, can offer you a ton. Uh, there are uh, more types of loans for small businesses and um, uh, what you call it, credits that you can get from uh, all sorts of providers to help get a business off the ground. I, I guess my 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 nugget of information there is if you're an entrepreneur, don't go down the classic path just because it's everything. It's all you've heard about. Yeah. Go investigate these other options. Oftentimes you will find a model that works better for you uh, than this one. And, and if you decide to go down that institutional capital route, mm -hmm. you should, you know, if you don't read Lost and Founder, you should read a few other uh, books and blog posts that have similar lessons learned because that path is uh, extraordinarily challenging because of the scale you need to reach yeah. and the type of exit that uh, makes you successful in those outcomes. And that's why success is so incredibly rare. Yeah. You know, you know, it's interesting along, along the lines of that topic, I recently interviewed Judy Robinette, who is one of the top funding experts. Um, uh, and in an, in another interview, actually very recent, I interviewed Mike Moyer, who is an expert in the equity split, uh, you know, okay. part of the, the conversation. So I have this whole entrepreneurial funding thing in my head yeah. right now when you talk about it. I'm curious. Um, you know, Judy and Mike, did, were they very venture-centric? Well, Judy was more venture-centric. Uh, Mike did not concern himself with that much yeah. because w his whole thing is how do you split equity fairly, which is a whole different... Uh, between like co-founders. Yeah, between co-founders. is a whole different thing. But the one thing you and the, the two of them appear to be saying that I'm I'm sort of trying to bring to the fore here is... If you're going to deal with big ticket clients, you know, that's who your investors are going to be or your potential clients and so on. You've got to get get past all the 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 hype or the technology details and be a person that builds relationships, right? Yeah. Um yeah, connect absolutely. at that connect at that authentic transparent level because that's where the money is, believe it or not. What's your opinion or do you have any final advice about how to connect with big ticket clients as an entrepreneur? Yeah, it's interesting. So I'm, I'm really, I love your framing on this because um, as a, as a business owner, as someone who built a software as a service business, I completely rejected the enterprise sales model. I never had a sales team. I never wanted a sales team. I never wanted big ticket clients. However, however, my investors, to your point, are big ticket clients, yeah. right? They're not, they're not buyers of our product, but my 36 investors for SparkToro and my, my two uh, three investors for uh, Moz were big ticket clients. And the way that I, you know, opened and closed all of those deals was through relationships. 
Uh, exactly, exactly what you said. Basically, I had built up recognition for my expertise in a space. Mm-hmm. I had done that through uh, blogging and through those Whiteboard Friday videos and through the conferences and events that I spoke at and through all the people that I sort of helped along the way, right? Lots of other entrepreneurs and business owners and, and marketing leaders and, and folks who you know, were uh, not marketing leaders when I worked with them, but became them over the course of their career. Yep. And those folks said great things, right? They said, hey, that, that Rand Fishkin person, you can trust him. Uh, he, he has good intent behind his work. Uh, he knows what he's talking about. He's been helpful to me. You, you should have a conversation with yeah. him. Makes and all- that is how, that's how all those big ticket uh, uh, relationships, relationships for me happen. Yeah, no, it makes all the difference. In fact, we've talked about your rebellion. This was my rebellion. You know, I, I, I had... You know, I had struggled as a marketer, online coach, all of that stuff with all these folks standing in front of their Bentleys and their big airplanes Ooh, <laughs> talking. I, really I just, I just hate that so much, oh. right? And and for me, I just realized, you know what? None of this stuff works with big ticket clients. In fact, the big ticket folks we're talking about, they are completely repelled by that kind of sort of behavior. Um, but yeah. if you can build a relationship that's based on trust and so on, like you've said, uh, you're, you're golden. You know, yeah. Rand, I don't know what to tell you, but I could keep talking to you. It's like we, we're way past over the 30 minutes. I want to I keep it contained. Right. You are just a fountain of knowledge and energy and enthusiasm. How can people reach you to um, either get your book, learn more about Spark Toro? What is the web address that you currently recommend? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can go to SparkToro.com, and we are uh, we're just starting our beta of the of the SparkToro product, which hopefully will be launched in the next few months. And um, there's uh, more information about the book there as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, you can you can reach out to me if uh, if you want to just chat. My most active channel is Twitter, where I'm at Randfish. Uh, just be just be warned. I occasionally have uh, political and social commentary in my feed. <laughs> so you know if that turns you off, you should uh, feel free to. <laughs> uh, just email me. I'm, yeah. I'm Rand Spartaro. Spoken. Dr. Belay, thank you so much for having me. This is this is awesome, man. Really great to connect. And I hope if you make it to Seattle, you drop me a line. If I make it to Austin, I'll definitely drop. Absolutely, you a line. we we got to do coffee. Rand, thank you so much for this uh, for for being on our show. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to the Big Ticket Clients Podcast. For more episodes and strategies, visit BigTicketClients.com. That's www.BigTicketClients.com. And remember, you can't catch a whale with a worm.